Good morning. It's good to be with you, brothers and sisters, today. And those who are visiting with us as well, we certainly welcome you. And we'll be in the book of Philippians this morning, chapter 3, through to verse 1 of chapter 4. And if any of you think it's rather odd to end um, the passage of Scripture with the beginning of the following chapter, the reason uh, is because this seems to be a unit. I'm not alone in thinking this. But uh, just keep in mind that although all 66 books of the Bible are inspired of God, the chapter and verse divisions are not inspired of God. There are some sections, such as the Psalms, that were originally given in those portions, uh, smaller portions. But by and large, men later introduced these, the chapters uh, around the 1200s versus more in the 1500s. So sometimes uh, the divisions can be somewhat subjective. So that's why we're going from verse 17 in chapter 3 to verse 1 in chapter 4 today. Also, if you have the, uh, the sheet for the notes for the sermon, if you like to have a little outline here, nothing really fancy today, just why and how, if you want to add that somewhere on the page. <laughs> if you want to leave a little space after the title, uh, be covering some, some things in the introduction. If you want to take some notes on that, then, then why and how, if you're looking for a guide to listen there. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, please open our hearts. Please give us understanding of your word this day so that we may obey and live as citizens of heaven. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, through chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what God's Word says. Brethren, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. May God bless the reading of his word. I wonder this morning, how many of you have ever been to a foreign country? How many of you have been to uh, another part of this country, perhaps, where things are a bit different from how we do it around here? Maybe you've stepped off that plane or that bus or out of that car, and people look at you and say, she's not from here. He's not from around here. Or if Someone comes here. Boy, he ain't from around here. She's not from these parts. And how do you know? Well, our customs, the way we dress, the way we speak, 
the protocols we follow for different things reveal rather quickly in some cases that we are not local, that we are not from that particular area. And so they realize that that there is a difference there. Well, the book of Philippians, uh, this letter is written to a group of people who took great pride in their citizenship. You may know that Philippi was a Roman colony. It was uh, named, of course, after Philip uh, II uh, of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. And so there was some great Greek influence there. But then later, when the Romans became the rulers of the known world, uh, at one point they claimed that for a colony. At Philippi, there was a a great uh, decisive battle fought that determined that Rome would become not a republic but an empire. And the winner of that battle, uh, Octavius, we know as Caesar Augustus, changed the face of the known world. Philippi had a privileged status as a Roman colony. They were not subject to the taxation that other people uh, who had been conquered by Rome were. They took great pride in their Roman citizenship, so much so that they would dress as the Romans dressed, even though Philippi was far from Rome. They would build their buildings with the same style of architecture as the Romans. They took great pride in their Roman citizenship. And you may know that the one writing to them was a Roman citizen as well. The Apostle Paul had Roman citizenship. And he would not say that such a thing should not be viewed as an asset or such a thing should not be used. He used it to advantage in Philippi after he had been wrongly imprisoned and they were about to let them go. And he wanted them to to come and, and reminded them that he and Silas were Roman citizens. So I don't believe Paul is writing from a viewpoint of saying that our earthly citizenship is of no consequence. But I believe he does make it clear that it is of much, a much lesser consequence than where our eternal destiny and where our citizenship beyond this life lies. And we can take great pride, those of us who are American citizens, but we have some great privileges. We have some, some things that we can be very thankful for. And we don't necessarily need to view that as nothing. We should be thankful for uh, the privilege we have as an American citizen. But how much more important is our citizenship in heaven? We know that earthly thrones and kingdoms will pass away. There is no civilization that is eternal. It it kind of bothers me when I look at those forever stamps that the post office has. I'm glad that they promised to keep the postage rate the same. But I look at that and I realize this nation is not forever. If we look at it from that standpoint, if, if it's a claim that our nation is going to last forever, that is a claim that is doomed to failure. But we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken, an eternal kingdom, a citizenship that if we're Christians, we should delight in and it should shape our lives So this morning, Paul is writing to those that while they have a privilege uh, and a joy in being Roman citizens, they have a higher privilege and a higher joy in being heavenly citizens. And I hope as I'm speaking to, to you today that this will encourage your heart. If you are a child of God, you have an eternal citizenship, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You have a citizenship in heaven. 
And if you do not have that assurance that you have that citizenship this morning, I hope it will incite in you a desire. It will show you the glories of Christ this morning and that he will draw you to himself and that you will place your faith in him so that you will be a heavenly citizen. So this morning, let's look at why. Why this exhortation to live as a citizen in heaven? Uh, you'll notice uh, when you read the scriptures, and especially the Apostle Paul, when he gives an imperative, he gives an indicative. When he gives a command, he gives a fact or a reason to support the command. It's not just do this, do this, do this, do this. But it's do this because of this. Do this because of this. And we're going to start with the why this morning. Why the exhortation to live as a citizen of heaven. Verse 18, that word for. This is giving a reason. Uh, you could understand this word for as because. In verse 18 and 19, he gives a negative example. And in verse 20 and 21, he gives a positive example. Notice 18 and 20 both start with that word for. Let's look at the negative example first. For many walk of whom I, told, whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. First of all, Paul gives a negative example. He says we should live as citizens of heaven because we do not want to follow the pattern set by these people. He says that uh, he has reminded them of this. Uh, he has told them of this before, perhaps in person when he had that ministry uh, beginning in Philippi, perhaps upon a return visit, perhaps in other communication to them, he has told them more than once about these enemies of the cross and has warned them. Even at the beginning of chapter 3, he told them when he was talking about the, these false teachers, probably Judaizers who were adding works to salvation that was supposed to be only through faith in Christ, he says that to write the same things again there in verse 1, he says, it's no trouble for me and it is a safeguard for you, uh, sometimes we can get weary of hearing uh, the repetition of a message at times. I know uh, in some work I've done in radio, many times I've heard the same public service announcement over and over or the weather forecast over and over or this ad or or that ad. Well, repetition does have a purpose. And it, if it's for something that is to instruct us, let's not get weary of hearing it. Paul says it's no problem for me to remind you and it's a safety for you. We need to take advantage of this. And this warning that he gives here, it's not uh, clear to me whether he's talking about the same people at the beginning of the chapter, the Judaizers who were teaching that you had to be circumcised, you had to keep some external aspects of, of the law to be saved. I'm not sure if he's talking about those or if he's talking about perhaps uh, those who would be given to licentiousness, those who would be more antinomian against law, who would say you can live any way you want. It doesn't matter. But at any rate, he's saying here, these are enemies of the cross. I tend to think it's the latter, that he's talking about those who would have loose living uh, that would characterize them. But at any rate, he says these are enemies of the cross. These are not friends of the cross. We know that Paul gloried, as he told uh, the Galatians, that he, he wanted to glory only in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He made that clear to the Corinthians, that he was only boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, but yet... These folks are enemies. You can be an enemy of the cross in more ways than one. The Judaizers were enemies by adding to the cross, by saying that 
Jesus had not done enough by coming. The virgin-born Son of God, living a perfect life, dying as a substitute, taking our sins upon Himself, rising from the dead and ascending to heaven. And that promise of His return also. They said those things are not enough. We've got to add some human works. We've got to add some element of something that you must do. And that's an enemy of the cross. We can oppose the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ when we think that our human efforts and our human works and our human accomplishments make us have some merit in God's sight. But we can also be an enemy of the cross by taking for granted exactly what it's supposed to accomplish in us. The cross of Jesus Christ is not there simply to take away our sin and simply give us a right standing with God, although it's nothing short of that. And that is a great and glorious privilege we would never want to minimize. But the cross of Jesus Christ is there to remind us how ugly sin is and how important righteousness is and to make us new creatures in Christ Jesus. That although we are not coming to God on the basis of our works, we're not coming to God presenting filthy rags that we would call righteousness as being what would merit our acceptance by Him. Yet, we should be those who want to live a life of holiness, a changed life, A life that evidences repentance and faith, not just one time when some decision was made, but every single day of our lives. This should characterize us. These people, I think, are those who oppose the cross by forgetting that Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. They are forgetting that the cross has ongoing implications in their lives. That it is not only for their justification, but for their sanctification, which they must continue to pursue by faith in Christ, but must actively obey Him. But we do not want to be as this negative example and oppose the cross of Christ, whether we do it intentionally or, uh, or not, perhaps on purpose. Let's pay att- close attention to our lives. So that we would live as citizens of heaven. These people, he says in this negative example, notice where their end is. That is, where is their final destiny? He says that it's destruction, verse 19. Their end is destruction. They are not headed to a place of eternal bliss. These folks are headed for hell. These folks are headed for eternal punishment by God. They are neglecting uh, to actually have their faith in the Savior These are folks who they worship, it says, their appetite, their God is their appetite, or literally their belly. Uh, They are all about instant gratification. They are all about satisfying the sensual desires of the flesh. They are those who are living simply for the pleasures of this life, whatever that may be. It could be something sinful that God has forbidden. It could be something that... Is, is lawful when used rightly. Food, drink, a sexual relationship within marriage, these are our wonderful blessings of God. But these are also things when taken to extremes and uh, can become idols that we pursue. They can become those things in which we think that all our pleasure and joy is wrapped up in that thing and we must have that thing or else we die. And this is the sort of Uh, Approach taken by these people Paul is describing. And it says they glory in their shame. These are people who 
the very thing that should embarrass them, the very thing that should make them want to hide, they're glad to toot the horn about that and publicly uh, talk about it. They glory in their shame. I was very saddened by an experience I had in college. I had who I believed was a dear brother. And he, he took a trip and, and went to, to a conference at a, a Christian college, or a, maybe we should say a, a supposed Christian college. I'm not exactly sure the nature of the conference and so on. But he came back completely different. He came back boasting that he had liberty and freedom to participate in acts that God clearly forbids in His Word. He was glorying in His shame. And it was a, a grief to my heart to see that. Because He, this morning I'm using Him as an example of one of these, uh, these people who, one of these, who's an enemy of the cross. And it saddens my heart, even as Paul could tell the Philippians of this with weeping, because he was going against very instrument of his salvation. He was glorying in something that should have been a shame. Whereas before, he, he seemed to be one who had repentance and faith in the Lord. His life at that point was showing the exact opposite. And we want to be mindful of these negative examples because we don't want to follow in that pattern. And these people also, Paul goes on to say, they are those who mind earthly things. Their minds are set on earthly things. It's just the temporary that matters to them. It's just this life. And at the risk of overusing this, I know uh, the author of uh, having your best life now, you know, has, has gotten a lot, a lot of flack, and I think deservedly so. But folks, these are people who truly have their best life now. And if we have our best life now, what does that say about our hope to come? If you're a Christian, your best life is not now. This is not it. We're still in a sin-cursed world. We still live with evidences of the fall all around us. We still have to struggle with sin in this life. If this is the best there is, let's live it up. Let's party. Let's do what these folks are doing in this passage here, this negative example, because there's no virtue. There's no, uh, no reward here in living righteously if this is truly it. And that's how they live. They live as, this, as if this life is it. And how easy it can be to do that. How easy it can, get, it can be to set our minds on those things that we simply see around us. And we see the circumstances we're facing. We see the difficulties in this life. And we, all we can focus on is the here and now. Paul would have us look beyond. He would have us look beyond. Notice the positive example that he gives. Verse 20 and 21. He says, if our citizenship is in heaven. From which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. By the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Notice, whereas these enemies of the cross, He had to warn against them. Here He's talking about people. He can say it in this way, our citizenship, Himself and the Philippians, people whose hope is in the cross. People who have been saved and who are trusting, who have believed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are not enemies of the cross. They are those who know that the cross was needed. and The cross is their salvation and who are living in light of that. And notice that their end is not destruction as the enemies of the cross is. Paul describes something completely different. He describes deliverance. Their end is deliverance, not destruction. 
There is a salvation, a future hope here, this transformation of our humble bodies into glorified bodies like those of our Lord Jesus, like the one of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see those here not uh, who worship their belly, whose God is their belly, but we see those who worship God, who are eagerly, patiently waiting, not as those who must instantly gratify those sensual appetites, but as those who patiently but yet expectantly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see those who glory not in their shame, but glory in their Savior, the one who has this glorious body and this awesome power to subject all things to himself. People, this is the one who made the worlds. God spoke and it came into existence. You and I have to fashion things out of pre-existing materials. Not so with God. He made all the pre-existing materials that man would ever work with. And he is the one who not only had the power to make it and also has the power to sustain it, but has the power to subject all things to himself. It's this one who will raise our humble bodies and make them like his glorious body. And we see not people who have their minds set on earthly things, but we see people who have their minds set on eternal things, on a future, on a best life that is yet to come, that has been bought by the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has been secured by him, who is going to restore all things as it was in Genesis 1 and 2, but even better. God made Adam. He made him... Uh, And he was not sinful yet, but he chose to go against God. He had an ability to sin, and he exercised it to that end. But in Revelation 21 and 22, we see a world that is post-curse, a world that is post-fall, a world that is redeemed, a new heaven and new earth that is even better than the first heaven and first earth, because the people who live in it In that new heaven and new earth that Peter describes, wherein righteousness dwells, we will not even be able to sin. I look forward to that day. Because I continue to sin. I continue to fall short and not prize God's glory as I ought. It's a struggle every day. But it won't be a struggle then. Aren't you glad? We will live in purity before God on that day. That is our hope, folks. And Paul gives these as reasons why we need to live as citizens of heaven and consider this matter of our heavenly citizenship. It is a precious thing that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has purchased for us. You know, Roman citizenship could be obtained through birth or through purchasing it. Paul had it by birth, but he he met a man who bought it at great price and it was precious to him. Now, folks, we can't attain to this heavenly citizenship through any earthly birth. It's one As put it, God doesn't have any grandchildren. We're only children of God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But if we are born again, if we're trusting in Him alone, He has bought this great privilege for us. So let us live as citizens of heaven. That's the why. The negative example. The positive example. Now let's look at the what. The reason I started with these verses here and and did not deal with the first and the last in this uh, passage is because I believe these two are commands that are supported by these reasons. And we're going to look at those now. Verse 17, brethren, join in following my example 
and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. This command hangs on the reasons that he just gave. Avoid this negative example of these enemies of the cross. Remember your citizenship in heaven, the hope we have in Christ who will return. And he says here, follow godly examples. He says, brethren, join in following my example. Observe others who walk according to this pattern. So we need to follow godly examples. Let's consider, first of all, how we can do this Uh, In the same way that the Philippians would have understood that. When Paul wrote to them and he said, join in following my example. What kind of example had he given them? Well, if we look at the letter of Philippians alone, we see in chapter 1, we see a man of prayer. We see a man who is serious about his communion with God. And that that also includes his intercession for the saints and his thanksgiving for them. We see a man who is concerned more than anything about the gospel and about it going forth. We see a man who is in jail, but he has great joy because his imprisonment has simply been an occasion for the furtherance, for the advancement and spreading of the gospel. What an example. I don't know about you, but I need to imitate that. I can get so focused on my circumstances that I can forget that the gospel is far more important. Reaching people with the good news of Jesus Christ is what I need to do, not wallow in self-pity. Paul wasn't wallowing, was he? He was, was praising God that even those who were preaching the gospel with a false motive, with a desire to make Paul jealous, he just rejoiced that Christ was being proclaimed. This is the example he was giving us. Then in chapter 2, He points us to Christ as the supreme example. And as our brother Neil shared this morning, and as uh, as 1 Peter has made clear, Christ is an example to us. He's not less. It's important we are trusting in Him as our substitute. But at the same time, uh, we need to look at Him as an example. And Paul points to Jesus as an example of humility, as one who humbled himself and obeyed God and waited upon God for His exaltation and recognition. And then Paul is able to point to three other examples in that chapter. Himself, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. As those who were spending themselves, giving of themselves, looking to the good of others. Not simply minding their own things as we can so easily do. Become so self-focused. But they're looking out for the good of others. How can I be a blessing to other people? How can I cause this person to hope and rejoice in Christ more? Then in chapter 3, we see Paul who had this great resume, who had this great, uh, you know, if if you ever collected baseball cards or or some kind of sports cards, you've seen the back of the card and all the statistics. So many home runs and so many RBIs and such such a batting average. You know, Paul would have had a a great uh, great baseball card if he'd been a baseball player. Uh, He said, you know, I am... uh, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, you know, I was a, a Pharisee keeping the law and I'd done all these things and I was circumcised the eighth day. And Paul just, he had a great record, humanly speaking. He said, I, I can't all that is done. Paul said, my human accomplishments are a liability to me if I trust in them. I've got to trust in Christ alone. So we see one who is trusting in the cross, who is trusting in the righteousness of Jesus. That's the record that he prized. Not his 
uh, so-called great accomplishments in this world. But he looked to the perfect record of Jesus Christ put to his account through faith. That that was the basis God was accepting him upon. And then we see him striving to go forward and to attain to that resurrection, looking forward to that. We see him growing uh, in sanctification here. The apostle even desiring to do that. We see him in chapter 4 being one who could say to the Philippians, basically, why worry when you can pray? Why be anxious when you can commit your cares to God? And we see him as one who is content in all circumstances. And let me emphasize that he said, I have learned to be content in all circumstances. I don't think Paul got there overnight. But he was one who was serious about his joy in Christ and his love for other believers. The Apostle Paul is a great example for us. And we can look in the book of Acts and see more instances of that. We can look through his many epistles besides Philippians and see more examples. And I would encourage you to do so. But I think we can also make an application here that uh, it's not just Paul that Paul would have us to look at. He said here, there's others, and I believe Timothy and Epaphroditus for sure from the book of Philippians, but I believe there's an application we can make today. The folks who lived in the apostolic times are not the only ones we can look to, for examples. We can look to church history. We can look to biographies. But we can also look to those who are living among us now. And I gave great thanks to God yesterday. So I was able to just, just think upon how God has blessed us with our elders and other examples in this, this congregation. And I think we need to look around at one another and where we see those godly examples that we join in imitating that because this is a group of people following in the same line as the Apostle Paul. And as I thought of how I could look at, at, at our elders and others in our church and some things that we could imitate. Here are some things that, that came to me and my wife as well as we talked about this. And I see men who are studious in the Word, who take God's Word seriously. It's not a light thing to stand and proclaim it or to teach it. Great attention and care is given to interpreting it correctly and applying it correctly. To us now. I see great care taken in how our services are planned. I've never been part of a church that has so emphasized scripture in the public services as this one. And to have four portions of it read, to have a psalm, to have an Old Testament passage, a New Testament passage, and the passage that's being preached upon, to have that read is precious. We shouldn't take that for granted. And just as as they have taken care to saturate these services with Scripture, we should take great care to saturate our lives that way. I see love and concern both here locally uh, for people in our congregation, for people who are not a part of our congregation, and for people abroad, for our missionaries and for the persecuted church. That time would be taken to to pray uh, for one another and also to do what we can. I see men who are kind to children in the church. Men who have love for their wives and family. And what a blessing just to see that over the last few days. Our pastor's concern. And, And to be there 
and see him with his wife. I see a focus on the gospel and primary doctrine in this church. Now, there are other matters that sometimes may come up, some secondary uh, doctrines of, of Scripture that are places that we can have a little bit of wiggle room. We may not see everything quite the same way, but it's, it's good to see. And even when my wife and I became members of this church, just a desire that we understood the gospel and that our hope was in Jesus alone. We were casting ourselves upon His mercy and to see Christ presented here. To see not a professional or hireling mentality, but to see true shepherds' hearts. To see people uh, who want others to grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus. To see men who are generous, hospitable. And to see others in our congregation as well. See those who, who are willing to adopt children outside of their family. What a blessing. What love. To see those who show concern for others. To see those who are serious about discipleship. That is a great blessing. And there, are, there is much here at Cornerstone Chapel that I have seen among you to imitate. And I thank God for that. Was, was convicted as I was, was meditating upon these things. It's so easy to take this for granted. There are people in parts of the world, there are people miles from us who do not have such an advantage. Let's not squander it. So let us follow godly examples. And then let us also stand firm. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. The idea here of standing firm is like a military post. Back in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul had had reminded them to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether he came and saw them or whether he remained absent, he would hear that they had been standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And he goes on in chapter 4 to remind them about the need for harmony there and unity in the church. I believe this is another consequence of our citizenship in heaven. That we need to stand firm. We need to persevere. We need to be steadfast in these things. It's easy to want to give up, isn't it? It's easy to become so pressed down with the cares of today and tomorrow and yesterday that we don't give any attention to this. But he says to stand firm. Keep on keeping on. Keep doing what you need to do. Keep attending to the means of grace. The very ordinary things that our pastor mentioned recently. Just our time in the Word and prayer. Our attention to fellowship in the local church. The things that God has called us to that will strengthen us 
and help us to be a continual witness for his gospel. Let us attend to those things and stand firm. These exhortations that Paul gives us, once again, the indicatives and the imperatives are joined. He says, do these things because of this truth. One person summed it up this way. Paul often says, be who you are. He says that to the Christian. He says, realize your identity and your position in Christ and live in light of that. But again, I emphasize, he says that to the Christian. And if you are not a Christian today, if you will put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you will realize that the God who made this world for his glory to display his perfections, that people would have great delight in him. That God is the one that we have sinned against. We have rebelled against Him. We have not prized Him. We have sought instead our own glory. We have preferred to sit on the throne as to have Him reigning. We would prefer to make our own rules as to submit to His. Even though His are loving and good. And He is all-knowing. But yet, even though we deserved eternal judgment, God sent His Son, Jesus, to live that perfect life that Adam failed to live. That Israel failed to exemplify. That he would have a perfect record. That could be put to our account. He who died and took our sins. In his body on the tree. That we could put our trust in him alone. And that he could change us. So that we could no longer live unto ourselves. But unto him. And if you will put our trust, your trust in this risen savior. In this one who has ascended. And who is returning. And who gives this hope. Of a glorious body like his own. Not a decaying, frail body that we all live in right now. Some uh, of us know that much better than others do. Uh, many in here are, are young and, and like myself have very little concept of, of the decay that will set in if the Lord would give us more years. But we've seen it in others. Folks, this is not it. God's going to give us something much better. This is a tent. He's giving us a house. And we have a great hope, but only if our trust is in Christ. So if you're a Christian, let me urge you, be who you are. And if you're not trusting in Jesus, let me beg you, run to the Savior today. He'll turn away none who come to Him and put their faith in Him. As we travel, we know that it's obvious when we're not from around a place. But folks, we're traveling through this life. This is a temporary stopping point. We are pilgrims. We are strangers here. We are aliens. And while we do have to some degree an earthly citizenship that we can thank God for and and we should certainly fulfill insofar as it would please God, our, our requirements with that, we've got something more important, something lasting, something eternal, something that if you're a Christian, this will characterize you forever. It will not always be said of of you that you're an American. But it will always be said of you, this is one from Zion, the heavenly Zion, the new Jerusalem. And so let me encourage you today to live as a citizen of heaven, to live as one who prizes that citizenship above all. And so that others can look and see the way we talk, the way we live, the things we do, what is important to us, that they can say, this one has a hope beyond this life. And that we may be able to tell others that they can have that hope as well. If they'll trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our citizenship in heaven. 
And Lord, please help us to live in light of that. Lord, we confess that we, we fall short so easily in this area. We often live as if our hope is in this life. Lord, it's not. We have no hope in the things of this world, Lord. It's only in you. And we thank you for that great hope that you hold out to us. Help us to eagerly wait. Because we know for certainty we have a Savior who has this great power and will accomplish these things. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.